We're going to continue with the life of Christ, and we're still in the book of John because we're looking at those episodes that happened between, uh, basically between his baptism and temptation and his beginning of his Galilean ministry, those things that John happens to talk about that the other gospel writers do not. And we're going to come to a very familiar passage, the woman at the well, and we're going to look at that. And notice I've branched out and did three points in the, in the, the outline instead of two, uh, simply because I think we can do it. I don't know. We'll see if we can get there. And, and the, the text demands it, actually. Um, and I, and, and I want to explain my use of the word heavenly uh, before each of those. The, the water, worship, and wages are all becoming clear. It will become clear. Why would I use the term heavenly? Well, if you recall, um, after, after we're told that Jesus knows what's in a person, what they need, his first encounter is with Nicodemus. And in, in that encounter, Jesus tells him that, how can I explain to you these heavenly things when you won't even get these earthly things? And what we're going to see um, here in this passage is that constant um, kind of tension and irony that comes because we know what Jesus is talking about, but his immediate audience does not. They're thinking on earthly plane, where he is talking on a heavenly plane, or about spiritual truths that they have to apprehend uh, with his explanation. So that's why I chose that term, because we're going to see that, that clash as we go through the narrative. It's interesting that uh, the first person that Jesus encounters, he's in Jerusalem, and it's, it's Nicodemus. Here you have this this Jewish ruler, someone of the high, you know, he's a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, um, a man. And now we're going to see Jesus encounter a woman, not a teacher of the law, uh, a Samaritan of all things, someone despised by the Jews, and vice versa, by the way, Samaritans despise uh, the Jews as well. So it's intriguing that we have these two instances uh, set side by side with that episode we looked at last week with John the Baptist and Jesus' ministries coexisting and hearing John the Baptist saying, his ministry must increase, mine must decrease. Well, it's on the heels of that that Jesus hears that the Pharisees are talking about the fact that there's another baptism, that Jesus there's more people coming to see Jesus than John, and because of that, he decides to leave to avoid this confrontation that could come too early in his ministry. And he's going to make his way back up to Galilee. And to do that, he decides to go through Samaria. Most people would avoid, as Jews, they would avoid Samaria. Coming down from Galilee into Jerusalem for festivals and things of that nature, we have historic accounts of how many people were you know, robbed and, and and uh, hijacked and all these kind of things. So not only was there danger of that, it's just that whole idea of, of a Jew having to go through Samaria. But Jesus chooses to do this. And that's what leads to what we're going to look at today. So before we get into any more, let's go ahead, first of all, and read just of, of this particular first point, the heavenly water. Let's just read the intro Verses 1 through 6. Someone read those aloud for us, Jay. Okay. 1 through 6, chapter 4. You moved. All right. Now that Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John. Although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized. 
he left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the ground where Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired, tired out from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. All right. That's it. Thank you, sir. You did great. So you hear part of what I recounted to you already, uh, the motivation for him to leave, as we heard in verse 1. Uh, and then we get this little side note that, that John provides that Jesus himself did not do any of the baptizing. His disciples did. If you recall uh, Paul to, this, to the church at Corinth saying, thank goodness I didn't baptize any of you. Well, maybe just a couple of you, but because he didn't want... People say, well, I was baptized by, I was baptized by, and it seems that Jesus is, well, he's not doing the baptism, so that avoids further conflict. But we're told that he left to go to Galilee, passed through Samaria, and he came to uh, Sychar and, uh, in a parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and it was Jacob's well was there. Um, so this is one of those places in, in Palestine that, that pretty much everyone agrees and is certain about where it is. You can still go there, and the well is still there. Uh, there, there are still Samaritans in a, in a small band who still are in that area. This is near the foot of Mount Gerizim, which will come up later, which figured prominently in the history of not just Israel, but especially of the Samaritans. Now this well, we're not told of anything about it in the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, we know that this was the land that Jacob gave to Joseph, and it's not unlikely that a well would be dug. Now it is an area of natural springs. There are springs all around, and this well, given by the word that we have that's used here for well, is actually a spring-fed well because uh, the word is used of, some of the Bibles may even say fountain or spring instead of well in this, in this verse. Now, later we're going to have the word traditionally for well, a shaft. But that's what the word used here is. So Jacob's well has been there for centuries. People know about it. And this well is near where this woman lives. She's a Samaritan. Um, she's had to walk a few minutes to get to the well. And we're told that she comes... Uh, at the sixth hour, there's already debate there, we're just told sixth hour. Now, is that Jewish or Roman time? If that's, if that's Roman time, then it's about noon. I mean, if it's Jewish time, it's about noon. If it's Roman time, it's either 6 a.m. or 6 p.m. And there's a lot of debate. You know, did she come at 6 p.m. in order to avoid the crowds because of her, I mean, in order, in, because that's when everyone would come in the evening, or did she come at noon to avoid the crowds? Uh, we're not going to get into that. I tend to go with midday because most people wouldn't come to get water then. And if Jesus and them had been traveling for a while, it just kind of makes sense. But either way, just know that sixth hour is up for debate. You guys can arm wrestle over it later. And I love that we're told that, that you know, it's just a little thing. Then um, Jesus was wearied from his journey. So he's sitting by the well. Jesus got tired? Whoa. Yeah, Jesus got tired. John's gospel, of course, is all about to convince, is trying to convince us that this is truly the Son of God. 
but he's also fully human. And we've talked about that uh, some uh, as an aside as well, but here, yeah, he, he, he walked a long way. He's weary. He's thirsty. He's like any of us. He's a human being as well. So that's the setting. Now let's talk about uh, Samaritans for a second. Uh, we all know the Samaritans from the parable of the Good Samaritan. When I was growing up, I just thought that was a term used for someone who did good things for people. And that's kind of how we've co-opted the word. But, of course, it has a, a, a richer meaning as far as in a historical meaning that we need to understand before we get into this. Uh, the Samaritans owe their roots to when the northern kingdom was sacked by Assyria, 722 B.C. And their policy, the Assyrians' policy, was not just to deport those they conquered, but they would leave the poorer families and they would import other people they conquered. And they, of course, would come with their gods and customs. And the Jews that were left intermarried with these other captives of Assyria. And that's where they owe their roots. Now, so right away you've got this you know, animosity the Jews have because they don't see them as full-blooded. Also, when the Jews were taken away captive by Babylon... They come back, remember the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, they come back, and the Samaritans who are there try to help them, want to help them to build the temple, but the Jews know that their worship has been corrupted by, you know, worshiping false gods, sort of a syncretism, if you want to think of it that way, and they refuse their help. The Samaritans try to, try to stop them from rebuilding the wall, so there's, there's some historical tension there of, of strife. In fact, when they were turned away from helping them build the temple, they built their own high place at Mount Gerizim, which is the well is right that you can look at the summit there. They built their own temple and worshiped there. And then during the Maccabean revolt, part of the Hasmonean dynasty destroyed that temple but they're still worshiping, Samaritans will still worship at the ruins of that temple. The reason it was destroyed is because it had been made a temple to Zeus by Antiochus Epiphanes IV. All right, you recall him. Uh, well, anyway, it had been made into this syncretistic, Hellenized, Greek, Jewish worship center. And during the Maccabean revolt to renew and cleanse Israel, that was destroyed. So Jews and Gentiles, I mean, Jews and Samaritans don't have much to do with each other. In fact, Jews treat the Samaritans like Gentiles. To call someone a Samaritan is an insult. You didn't, you tried to have nothing to do with them. You could, Jews had laws you couldn't eat with them, couldn't drink after them, which is going to play or use their vessels for drinking, which is going to play an important part in what's happening here. So a lot of history between the Jews and the Samaritans. So, a lot of tension. And Jesus intentionally goes through Samaria and encounters this well, and now let's see what happens. Now that you've had your history lesson. Someone read now for us, beginning of verse 7, and go through verse 14. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. 
how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Awesome. So you hear right away the tension of the earthly and the heavenly, or the literal and the spiritual, right? We all know that Jesus is talking about something other than literal water when he talks about living water. But it, initially, she doesn't see that. We do, hence the heavenly part of what I put in the outline versus the earthly understanding of water. So here comes a woman. Not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman. If you're a rabbi, you don't talk to women in public for fear of gossip and things that would go on. So here you have this Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. And Jesus initiates the conversation. That's what's fun about it, too. He's here for more, of course, than just water. Why did he want to go through Samaria? Obviously, there's, we're going to find out later that he's here to complete his father's work. It's not just to get to Galilee. He knows there's opportunities here to share the new kingdom and his message with these people who have been ostracized by the Jews. So he initiates the conversation and asks for water. Give me a drink. Now, perhaps at this point, we're supposed to assume that she has already pulled or drawn water from the well. Uh, that'll make sense a little bit later. And he asks for a drink. Now, we're also given this detail that there's no one else around. The disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Now, you're thinking, why would the Jews, these Jews, go into Samaria, in one of these Samaritan villages, to buy food? Jesus is either already helping them to see that some of these things don't matter, or some will speculate that in, in cases of need, then we'll, we'll go ahead and swallow our pride and, and engage in commerce with these hated unclean Samaritans. But a Samaritan woman was considered unclean at all times to the Jews. So here is Jesus by himself with this Samaritan woman asking for a drink. And she, of course, understands the customs and, and the way things are. How is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink? I'm a Samaritan woman. And then John puts the aside in there, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Or you can actually translate, Jews do not share vessels with Samaritans. In other words, drinking vessels. You don't, you don't do that. You don't share. So she's wondering, wow, she's taken aback, probably a little stunned. And he's just asked for water. And she's, she's at this point, hasn't even gotten to the point of trying to give him water. She just wants to know, how in the world can you be asking this? 
So he then answers her, again now on the heavenly realm, spiritual realm, if you knew the gift of God, which he's going to explain, that gift of God of the Holy Spirit and salvation and new life through him, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you'd have asked him, meaning me, and he would have given you living water. Living water is running water or spring water, water that is fresh and running from a spring. And that's what she hears. She's, she's still not with us. He's, of course, alluding already to the new gift of life in the heavenly kingdom, in God's kingdom, brought about by the Holy Spirit, this living water. But she very literally says, Sir, you don't have anything to draw. This well is pretty deep. And here's the regular word for well, a shaft. Um, that shaft is still over 100 feet deep, even with, they've cleaned it out some. Uh, this is just me reading, by the way. I haven't been there, don't know. But uh, it's still very deep. And if it's spring-fed, and it is spring-fed, by the way, that living water is well deep down at the springs. She goes, how are you going to get that water? This thing is deep. You're not going to be able to get that. You don't even have anything to draw with. And by the way, are you greater than our father Jacob, who dug this thing, who drank from this thing, who all of his children and cattle, everybody, who are you to say you can do this? So Jesus said to her, and again, notice the shift. He's now speaking to her of what she really, truly needs. Not the physical water, but what he means by living water. Everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the well water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. Interestingly, in the Greek, that is, will by no means thirst unto the age. Um, and I bring that up because in the next line he says, the water I give him will become a, a well of water springing up to eternal life. There's that word age again. The life of the age. You won't thirst unto the age and the water I give you will bring you into that age. The age of the new working of God. The new age. That's, how, that's what we translate as eternal life. So here he is talking about the living water, which John later in chapter 7 will give us an explanation talking about the Holy Spirit. Is it the new life? Well, yes, but remember, the new life comes about through the outpouring and the cleansing of the Holy Spirit, the enlivening of the Holy Spirit, just as normal life, has, has that sustenance of water, so spiritual life, the new life, has this living water, the Holy Spirit. And he's saying that this is going to, as a well, just burst forth, gurgles on its own. You've got to work and labor to get this water. The new, the living water will just spring up within you. How many of y'all remember camps and spring up, oh well, and what do you do then? Spring up, oh well. Gush, 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 gush. You don't remember? You don't remember this? Splish, splash. Gush, 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 gush. Whoosh. Oh my goodness. You never did it? Yeah. 
It's one of those little camp songs where you get everybody active. Spring up, oh well, gush, and everyone stands up, gush, 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 and then sits back down. Within my soul, spring up, oh well, splish, splash, and make me whole. Spring up, oh well, whoosh, and bring to me life abundantly. I didn't sing it, did I? <laughs> well, now you know a camp song. Uh, Fortunately, well, not fortunate. I haven't been to a camp in a long time, and that's by choice. All right, anyway, <laughs> done my gig, done my duty for many, 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 many years. Well, there you go. Uh, so spring up, oh well. So this is just from within. Well, um, he's got our attention. All right, he's got our attention. And what happens is anytime you start taking Jesus seriously, you're in for it. There's more to come. And she starts taking Jesus seriously. She's like, okay. Well, she doesn't know what she's in for. Additionally, if you're going to have this living water, the Holy Spirit rushing through you, the new life, well, you've got to get rid of that tepid, stagnant, stale water you've been living on. And that's, a, that's what he's going to do now. He's going to point out to her what's going to be necessary. In other words... To know that you're thirsty, I mean, to know that you want to have water, you got to know that you're thirsty. And to speak spiritually, you got to know that you need this new life. So he's going to point out very clearly what she needs to get rid of that old stagnant water so that she can imbibe the living water. And along the way, now, to do that, he's going to talk about heavenly worship. It's going to be fun to, when they get to why they get to the idea of worship. But first of all, let's hear what she has to say and how he responds, and that forms the context of point number two. Uh, 15 through 26. Someone read those aloud for us. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll read it. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, go for it. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Boom. <laughs> All right. Well, you see where that went. 
Well, let's understand why it went there. Uh, so she's intrigued. He's got her attention. She starts, he, she starts to take him seriously. So she says, well, give me this water. But notice where, what level she's still on. Give me this water so that I won't be thirsty and I won't have to come all the way here from town to get water every day. So it's still on that level. And, and you know, before we're too critical, I, I, we'd probably be there too. Uh, and often we are. But we, of course, have the history and John's commentary for us. But so she's still there. So in order to get through to her about the, her real thirst, the real thirst she needs to quench, she, he then digs into her soul, into who she is. And that's part of the painful process of coming to Christ. That's, that's why we initially usually flee from the light. We've already had that commentary, right? And we've, John's already told us men love darkness rather than light. We don't like the spotlight on our own lives. Um, and that's part of the human condition. But that's something that must happen to come to the light. We've got the dirty, old, stagnant water must be pointed out before the new water will cleanse. So he just tells her, well, all right, go get your husband and come back. That's all it was. Because he knows. Um, and never doubt that, by the way. And that's always a shocker to us. Um, God knows. Jesus knows. Uh, so she said, I don't have a husband. <laughs> and, and of course, it's kind of evasive. Well, I don't have a husband. Well, he says, yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. <laughs> and the one you're with now is not your husband. Yeah. You said the truth all right. Now, how would you like to be confronted like that? She's never met the man. And he's just told her things that, how could he know this? Mm -hmm. And their light is shining. And the water's starting to flow. So, like all of us, when we get uncomfortable about morality, we start talking about religion. What better way of subterfuge than to, uh, well, oh, yeah, where do you go to church? I go to over here. Or you're my parents, you know, they go to, uh, you know, we start talking religion. And that's what she does. Ah, you are a prophet, I see. You must, you know these things, so ah, you're a prophet. Uh, you know, um, Gerizim here, we, we worship here, and you Jews say, you know, it's, it's in Jerusalem. What do you think about that? I mean, you know, hey, let's talk about that. Now, she may have, you know, I'm sure she's grown up understanding the controversy, and perhaps she does, of course, at some level, would like to know, you know, a little more about that. But at this point, reading it, I think, the way we're supposed to, at least the way I understand it, um, it's more of, let's, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about religion and what a prophet should talk about. Get out of my business. So that is what leads him to now zero in 
on what's happening with the kingdom of God and true worship. She's hung up about Gerizim versus Jerusalem. Uh, Mount Gerizim has had a long history. In fact, um, you know, if you read in Deuteronomy, it was, it was, Gerizim was one of the mountains, and it was a mountain from which God pronounced, where the people pronounced the blessings, where Moses had the people walk between the two and declare curses and blessings, and that was the mountain. Um, the Samaritans said that's the mountain where, uh, where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. He said that's the mountain where Abraham met Melchizedek. That's the mountain where, and pretty much any mountain in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, they equated with Mount Gerizim, and still do. In fact, they only, like the Sanhedrin, I mean like the Sadducees, they only see the first five books as authoritative. So they lack the fuller revelation of God about who he is and what the Messiah will be and what the coming of the kingdom will be like. So they, they come by that honestly. Indeed, today, there are still those who celebrate a Samaritan Passover at Mount Gerizim. Still today. Sacrifice. Lambs. Still today. Very small group, but it's still around. Well, Jesus isn't going to be drawn into that. Because you're worried about geography. Believe me, woman, an hour is coming. It's not going to be this mountain. It's not going to be Jerusalem. Where are you going to worship the Father? Notice she says, where our fathers worshipped. And he says, well, actually, it's not there or here where we're going to worship our Father. You worship that which you don't know. Remember, they only have the Pentateuch, and it's been sort of jaded over the years, and been a lot of syncretism. Because you don't even, don't even know what you worship. You don't worship, you have no idea what you're doing. You just have this place that you associate with worship. Whereas we, the Jews, we know. We worship that which we do know. Salvation is from the Jews. Now, he's not going to get drawn into it, but he's not going to ignore the fact that you know, it's salvation, God, and it's actually the word, when it says salvation, there's an article there in the Greek. The salvation. The salvation comes through the Jews. God has been working through the Jews. You don't have the rest of the Old Testament. You can't know. You're in ignorance. But it's through the Jews that this will come. But it's not a place. What is it about? It's not about a place. It's about the hour's coming. Indeed, it's now come. If you knew who was before you, he said, well, the hour has come with him to say, we shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In sincerity and understanding. In spirit and in truth. Not a place. It's not about where you are. It's not the architecture or the location. It's about where you are in spirit. We're told God is spirit. He can't be located. It's not a place. So we must worship in spirit where we are and in truth and in sincerity and in understanding. Spirit and in truth. And of course, later we all know that you know, Jesus is going to claim himself to be the way the truth and the life in truth to worship in spirit and in truth. Um, that's, doesn't, that's not to say that church buildings are bad, okay? 
Um, church buildings in their own way can serve as a beacon. People kind of know, well, there's a church. And there's nothing wrong with a place for us to gather. Don't hear that. But when we start thinking that God lives at the church, that's when we get into trouble. It doesn't require this place to worship. In fact, you can come to this place to worship and not worship if you're not worshiping in spirit and in truth with all of who you are and in sincerity, in spirit and in truth. Heavenly worship, not earthly, not a place. So there's a lot going on here. So <laughs> she one last time says, well, you know, the restorer, the Messiah, he's coming. He'll, let's just wait. He'll work this all out for us. He'll figure it all out. When he comes, he'll explain it all. Like, <laughs> In other words, again, take Jesus sincerely. You're going to get the full amount. And she's, well, let's just wait for the Messiah. Now, they, the Samaritans had an understanding of the Messiah, but not the full-orbed understanding that the Jews were looking for. They were looking more for a second Moses to explain things. Again, remember, they only had the Pentateuch. And the fact that uh, their word for the Messiah was Tahab, the restorer, the one who would restore proper understanding. That's what they were looking for. So she says, well, let's just wait. And of course, now this proclamation. And in the, in the Greek, actually, the phrase, I am, is first. Ego, I me. And of course, I am. That the, the name of God. I am that speak to you. That's the, the Greek order of things. So he declares publicly that he is the Messiah here to this Samaritan woman. Why here? Why didn't he do it wherever he went? Why didn't he do it when he was in Jerusalem? Why was he always telling his disciples later to keep it on the lowdown? It's because of other people's expectations of who the Messiah should be it's going to lead to the ultimate conflict. And it's not yet time. But here in Samaria, with this woman, he makes the declaration. Wow. Now what's she going to do? Well, seems like something got through to her. Whether she's a full-orbed belief, on the way to full belief, it's probably, it's, it's going to be belief. But she's... Like us, I got go. okay. I'll go. I'm gonna. And about that time, right at the end of this, here come the disciples from town. If you're gonna film this, it'd be great. Be, be try to be a director and how you would stage it. You know how you get this. How do you get? You know how did this would all come up? Because we get some cool um, direction in here. And he's gonna talk now. And I put the W for wages because it's in the text. Uh, you'd probably be heavenly harvest or uh, heavenly food would be good, but he's going to talk about heavenly wages as well for those who reap this harvest. So it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of stuff. But the disciples are coming back. They catch the tail end of this. They see this with Jesus with a woman, Samaritan woman. Ooh. Now remember, there's only a few disciples at this point, right? There's not, not a whole gang of them, just a few of them. So, 
Let's hear what happens. Someone read now verses 27 through 38. All right. You get the gist at the end of it, you know, him just saying, look, get busy. This is a, look at the blessing here. Here's what we came for. You know, that's kind of a, you know, a little, little small paraphrase of, of how it ends up. But let's get there. So at this point, his disciples come. They marveled he'd been speaking with a woman. But no one said, probably to her, what do you seek? What do you want? And then to him, why are you speaking to her? Well, why didn't they? And again, that's one of those where you would have to stage that if you were filming this, right? You, could, you don't crawl into people's minds. You've got to do everything visually. So how would you do that? You know, they come up and kind of look at each other. And, I mean, how, how, you know, you'd have to do it through how we do it, by the way. You've been into situations where all of you want to say something, but you don't. And you just kind of knowingly look at each other, you know, that kind of thing. Now, there's not all the time that the disciples aren't going to be so bashful. As they get to know him more and more, they start openly questioning more and more, uh, which is good. That's why we get so many of the great teachings of the New Testament in the Gospels. Uh, but in this case, uh, it's early still in the ministry. They, there's a trust, and she's probably there. She's just leaving or there. That's why they didn't say, what do you want? to her, or why are you talking to the woman, to him. Part of it's just probably they just didn't want to open this can, if you want to think of it that way. So we've got two scenes going on now. Now we've got her going back to her village, and we've got the disciples still with Jesus. What happens back in the village? She goes back, and here's this woman that probably, it's not like every, it's a secret. People know who she is. She's probably got a reputation. If she's been married that many times, now, we don't know, you know, what happened. Did her husbands die or, you know, what's, were they divorced? We, we don't know the full situation. But general rabbinic teaching was even if the husband died, you don't marry more than three times. And here's five. And now she's with someone who's not her husband. People would know, okay? And here she comes running into the village. Some say, well, why would anyone listen to her? You know, a Samaritan woman of this type of reputation uh, well, that's probably why they listened to her. Because she's saying, you're not going to believe this, but you know what you know? Someone I don't know told me what you know about me. <laughs> and she's not, 
I mean, so, and we were talking about the Messiah. Is this, could this be? So that's probably more the motivation as to why they would listen to her. Yes? That's a good point. They would know that despite all that, she's someone who has plowed through. Yeah. So they come out. So here they come. That's the scene. So here's a bunch of people coming back to the well. Now we're back at the well, and here's the disciples with Jesus. And here again, notice the contrast. Notice, first of all, it was earthly water versus spiritual or heavenly water. Then it was earthly worship versus spiritual or heavenly worship. Now, they're concerned about his earthly, his food. And he's going to ramp it up. He's going to talk heavenly. So, Rabbi, eat. We got some food. We came back here. We, and by the way, that's the disciple's job. A disciple takes care of their master, so they're concerned about his well-being. So here, go ahead. Um, eat something. And then he, of course, in introduction says, I have food. I have sustenance that you don't know about. And of course, they're still on that level. Say, well, no one would have given him food, would they? Especially Samaritans. You don't think Samaritans came out here and gave him some food, do you? So that's where they are. He, of course, is now going to lift their eyes and their perspective about the heavenly food that he's talking about. And beyond that, now this spiritual reaping of the harvest of people, Samaritan people, coming into the kingdom. So the setting is, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, to accomplish his will, to finish his will. By the way, that's the same Greek word used that we have the Greek from Jesus on the cross of it is finished. To finish his work. Don't, don't you say, and it could be this is either a proverb or they've just been saying it because they've been walking along and they've seen the crops. And they're saying, man, it's still four months before we harvest this stuff, before people are going to be able to harvest. Or it could have been a proverb. Um, you know, it's funny to read. I don't know, they, they got to do it. But scholars talking about, well, there's no ex extra biblical evidence for such a proverb. Well, just think of all the proverbs we have that aren't written down anywhere. You know, uh, you know, old, you know you know, folklore and all that kind of stuff. But whether it's a proverb or whether you're just saying, haven't you been saying, and he says you say, but it could be, haven't you just been saying since we got here, man, it's a long time before the crops come. Or it could be a proverb that means you got to wait, right? Once you sow, you got to wait. There's, there, you got to be patient. Either way, he goes, but I'm going to tell you, look, lift up your eyes. And of course, here, if you're filming this, you're putting this on screen, you're going to have these people coming out, probably in, in whitish robes, not white, but, you know, just kind of, it's in a contrast to the scene, coming, coming towards the well, and he's saying, lift, look, 
Lift up your eyes. Look on the fields. They're white for harvest. Here they come. And now he helps them to understand what he is talking about. And he's going to talk about that, that progress of sowing and reaping. He says, already those who reap are receiving wages. Look, it's, you're late. You're, you're actually coming to this late. And of course, this is probably a hint at what the, so the woman has already done. She's already gone in. And here they come. Because you're coming to the party late. The wages are already, are already being passed out. And you are reapers, so get in on this. They're gathering fruit for life of the age. Life eternal. And the one that sows and reaps now can rejoice together. Uh, Amos, in, at the end of Amos. Remember we studied Amos? Of course you do. But been a while back I think it's three years two years I don't know we did a whole section on a lot of Old Testament um, but um, near the end of Amos one of the, the prophecies about the messianic kingdom is that is that the sower would overtake the plowman there's gonna be such fruit and here the fruit of course is heavenly fruit souls people coming out here comes the harvest get ready and you've heard it said that well, one sows and other reaps. That's kind of one of those, pro that is a proverb that talked about the inequities of life. Well, sometimes you're a sower, sometimes you're a reaper. One sows, the other reaps. You may do all the hard work, someone else is going to get the reward. You know, in other words, it was a proverb more of <sighs> that. When he's saying, yeah, it's true. But not in the way you think. He says, this is true. One says, I say to you, in this case, the saying's true. I sent you to reap that which you've not labored. Others now have labored. And you are now going to be able to enter into that labor. Sower, reaper, we all rejoice. The sower gets now to enjoy the reward of seeing what the reaper's doing. And then there's further fruit from that. And then the reaper gets... It's just, yeah, look. No more division of labor. In fact, now you get to reap that which you haven't sown. And here come the wages. Get busy. Well, who's he talking about? Who did all this sowing? Well, he did. Jesus did. The Samaritan woman did. John the Baptist has. You know, there's been a lot of folks, and you never know, right? And that's been the case here. So he's saying, here comes your heavenly wage. Here come the people. Start bringing them in. Reap, for this is a harvest unto the life of the age. Eternal life. And this is Samaria. We're told that many come out, many believe. He stayed for them a couple more days. And, it's not, and we're, told late, we're told on the heels of this that the people say, it's not just because you told us he told you everything you ever did in your life. We now believe that he is the Savior of the world. Cool stuff. All still in John's theme of seeing that, that kind of weird where he's talking, Jesus is talking here, and people are talking here, and they have to be brought up. And often when we talk to people, sometimes that has to happen, right? It takes a while to help people to understand what we're talking about. And that's okay. That's okay because once the Holy Spirit is at work, 
going to start bubbling up. It's going to be there, that refreshing spring, constantly bubbling up within all of us. And I'm going to ask all of us, before we depart the passage, just to, to, to think of your own walk. Are things still bubbling? I mean, in other words, are we worshiping in spirit and in truth, in sincerity? Or are we still trying to hide and, and kind of be evasive? Or are we allowing that cleansing Holy Spirit to spring up? Oh, well, gush, gush, gush. Is that? So it's, it's, it's a challenge for us as well. Because we are this reality. We have been reaped. This is ours. Now what are we going to do? She ran back to her village. Are we going to sit on it? Or what are we going to do? All right. There you go. Now we, at the Baptist church, we have an invitation. <laughs> Any closing thoughts? Thank you, Jay. Yes. And he knows all about us, too. <laughs> I bet it's all the husbands coming out. <laughs> no, I'm <just> kidding. You said in a Baptist church you have an invitation. What do you do here? I'm sorry? Oh, there's still an invitation, but it's not to come down front. There's an invitation to come meet somebody. Yeah, yeah, sure. All right, let's pray. It's always fun, always good to be around your word and to be together as a body. Uh, thank you for uh, your faithfulness through this past week, uh, answering prayers we've forgotten we've even prayed. Uh, looking out for things we didn't know to even ask for. Uh, that your Holy Spirit has interceded for us uh, for things that we didn't know to pray for. And now as we face uh, another week, we know it's going to be full of these opportunities, uh, these moments to encounter others. Pray that we would be uh, open to the working of your Holy Spirit, that we would lift up our eyes and we would see the harvest and we'd get busy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.